you, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the, good, the Ten Commandments, and we're going to kind of take a step back and look at the overall picture of those years that were wandering, the wandering wilderness years of the children of Israel today. Really, Exodus, all of Exodus and, and, and Numbers, if you will, if we were to take that whole big chunk of the Bible and, and focus in on it. As you know, we talked about the, the children of Israel, God led them out of Egypt where they'd been kept as for, for four, 400 years led them through the Red Sea, dry ground, and they got on the other side, and as you might expect, they were excited about that. Freedom! Hooray! And so they celebrated a little bit, and then God directed them to go to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where God first encountered Moses. And so they go there, and they camp out there for about 11 months. It took them about two or three months to get there to Mount Sinai, and then they camped out there for about 11 months. It was there that, again, like we talked about the last two weeks, that Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, all the law that, that we have. Then from there, they went to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is about 150 miles as the crow flies to get there. They're wandering. When we say that the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, they really weren't wandering all that much. Maybe a month or two to get to Mount Sinai, maybe a couple of months to get to Kadesh Barnea, maybe a little bit around. Maybe six months out of the 40 years they were wandering. The rest of the time they were camping. They were living in tents, camping. It was, you know, so it shouldn't be the wilderness wanderings, maybe the wilderness camp out for 40 years. So that's what's, what's going on. Now, now we know, and we know, we know, we know the book of Exodus. It's called the book of Exodus. There's three big themes that run through Exodus and Numbers. Of course, the first big theme, what we've been talking about these last few weeks, is getting out of Egypt, right? The Exodus. That's why it's called the book of Exodus. Would it surprise you if I told you that what is, used, what is uh, communicated the most the biggest block of scripture, the biggest volume in the book of Exodus is not the Exodus. Say, wait a minute, it's supposed to be the Exodus. It's called the book of Exodus. It's not the Exodus. The most words used in the book of Exodus are related to the second big theme of that book of Exodus and Numbers, and that is the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. It is a, a really kind of a big, huge, glorified tent that, that God called them to, to, to build and told them all the, the, the uh, equipment that they were to have inside the tabernacle. It's a place that would later house the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. That takes up way more space than the actual Exodus itself. So if there's themes running through, the first big theme is the book of Exodus, is the Exodus. God telling Moses at the burning bush, go to Pharaoh, let my people go. He goes to Pharaoh, he tells them, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, no. And then God sends plague, 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 plague. Eventually he says, okay, you can go. And then when they, when they get going, Pharaoh says, no, change my mind. And he chases after them. And then they get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh discovers that chariots don't float and the children of Israel go free. Exodus, big theme. Second, why would God spend so much time on the building of the tabernacle? In, in Exodus 25, he, he comes to Moses and says this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. This is going to be the first capital stewardship campaign in the Bible, right here. Tell the people of Israel to bring me an offering. You are to receive an offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Then we, they will make me a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all the furnishings exactly like the pattern 
I will show you. Okay, so the capital stewardship campaign. Everybody, give an offering. Uh, uh, and, and then we're going to build this huge glorified tent in which, 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 which I'll live. Or reside. A visible symbol of an invisible God. So then you get to chapter 36. How'd the offering go? Chapter 36 tells us. So the skilled workers were doing all the work on the sanctuary left that they were doing and said, left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for the work of the Lord commanded to be done. Then the Lord, then Moses gave the order and sent out the word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because they already had what was more than enough to do all the work. Wow! Can you imagine that? Stop giving. No more giving. Stop, stop. You're giving too much. No more giving. Have you ever heard a pastor say that? Never. I love you, but I'm not going to. We still owe three and a half million dollars on this building. <laughs> Keep giving. Moses said, stop giving. So that makes the, 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 the preacher in me say, what's the deal? Why were these people so generous? Why did they give so much that it came to the point where Moses said, okay, enough, enough already. We, we got enough. We got more than enough. No more giving. In fact, in fact, the Bible says they restrain them. You might want to give. No, you can't give. No, no, no. We'll tie you up so you can't give. What kind of people? Why would they give so much? Is that a good question to ask? Why would they give so much? And why would God prioritize, devote so much time and space in Scripture for the building of the tabernacle? I think, I think, I think I know. Remember, they had spent 400 years in Egypt. 400 years with pagan gods and pagan practices and all the stuff that went along with being slaves. And now they're free. And now, and, and, and God Almighty is the one that did this. There was no denying. The Red Sea split. They walked through. And so again, they wanted this visible symbol of an invisible God that was placed right in the center of their community. Everything all around it was where the, the people lived. They put their tents all around it, but the center, the center, the center, that was the holy ground. And there was no mistaking it was holy ground. It contained the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. It would be this holy place of worship, not just for there at Kadesh Barnea, but they would take it with them when they go into the Promised Land. And it would be the place of worship for the next 300 years. All the way until David gathered the materials and Solomon built the temple on, on top of Mount Moriah in, in Jerusalem. So for 300 years, this was at holy ground. And I think those people were, were desperate for a holy ground, for a holy space. Where they knew this is the one who brought us through the Red Sea. And this is the one who rescued us out of slavery. And this is the one in whom we are devoted. And so it was a part of their community. It was holy ground. See, that's a big theme in, in, in Exodus. Remember, Moses, when he first encountered God, remember that? At the burning bush, what did God tell him? This is holy ground, flip off your, your sandals. Holy ground. The people needed it then. I, people need it now. You know, in, in, in history, throughout history, if you go to Europe, if you've ever been to Europe, you'll know you can go from city to city to city. Thankfully, Carla and I have been able to go. And you go into different cities in all ways. The most gorgeous, the most ornate buildings are the cathedrals. If you've been there, you know that that's true. And you can go in there and they're gorgeous. 
And some of them have stained glass windows. And they're stained glass windows there because in the Middle Ages, people who were illiterate could go into the cathedral and they could look at the stained glass. And it would tell the story of God through those, through those gorgeous stained glass windows or, the, or the, the, the tapestries on the walls. Gorgeous. And that's the way it was. Even in our country, when, uh, in the pioneer days, when a town would, would, would develop and start up, there'd be a church not far behind. And even the architecture in those little churches, they always had what? They always had a steeple. Steeple always pointed to heaven. Maybe they'd put a cross on the top. And they'd say, this ground, this place, this is holy ground. Now in the last half of the 20th century, that changed. Architecture changed. And the most ornate, the most gorgeous buildings aren't churches or cathedrals anymore. Now it's uh, performing arts centers. Or, or even office buildings or museums why is that because we've moved even in our architecture it shows how we've moved our focus off of god almighty onto things that we have made and these things that we have done and what we have and partly the church is to blame i get it there comes some part is is finances and you want to build as big a building as you can and for as many people and all of that that sort of thing and so partly churches are to blame too you know we don't have one stained glass window in this room but our architecture has moved away from God. The point, the point I'm trying to make, the point I think is being made in Exodus, so much time and space dealing with the tabernacle, is there need to be a holy place, holy ground. If you talk to old timers who've come to Central Church forever, you know, it's our 100th year. We have some people who have come to this church for over 70 years. If you talk to them, you, you, you ask them, when was the, the best time? They'll, all, they'll point back to back in the 60s, 70s, in the Reverend Andre years. And they'll say, boy, when you walked in the building, you just sensed God's presence. Even before the service started, you just sensed God's presence. And you knew it was holy ground. It was a holy place. I said, well, why, why can't that be for us? Why can't that be now? You know, we do our 24-7 prayer time in, in, usually in August this year. Thank you, COVID. We couldn't do it. Um, but typically what we would do is, is we set up the prayer room in the library, and we have cards. And many of you, you know the deal. You fill out the card, and, 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 and people will pray over those. We put those in there. We put other prayer requests in there. We have some music that can be playing if you'd like that. But people pray all week, 168 hours. They're praying, praying, praying. Some people get up at 2 in the morning. They get out of bed, roll out of bed, come here, pray, go back home, get back in bed. And at the beginning, they say, well, why don't we just do that at home? Why can't we just pray at home? We don't want to get in our car, drive at 2 in the morning, come to church, pray for an hour, go home. Because we want this to be a holy place. And people afterwards, after, after we've done it a few years now, people say, oh, Pastor, there's just something. You walk in that room, you know, it's holy. And I love that. I love that. I love that week. But can I tell you, I want, I want to be holy, not just in some little room in some little corner of the church. I want this to be a holy place, all 90,000 square feet of this place to be a holy place. Where, where, where we come in, even when we get out of the parking lot, we pull in our parking lot, we get our car, we say, man, I can't wait to get in there. Why? Because I know I'm going to be with God Almighty. It's a holy place, holy ground. Not even on a parking lot. I want people driving by on Bristol Road saying, wow, there's something going on there. It's a holy place, holy ground. Not even that. You online viewers, I'm so thankful for you. 
And I don't know how this would work internet-wise, but I pray, that, I pray even now that God would transform your living room. I know you want to be here. You can't be here. Transform your living room. If you're listening in the car, transform your car into a holy tabernacle. That it'd be holy ground. I want this place to be a holy place. Do you remember when, when Jesus was, um, went to the temple? And John, it's earlier in this ministry, Mark, Matthew, Luke, it's later in the ministry, probably happened later. John was not so concerned about chronology. He was just telling the story. But Jesus gets to Jerusalem, goes to the temple. What does he do? He sees all this junk going on. He starts flipping over tables. Remember, he makes a whip, chases the money changers out. And what does he say? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what we need. Listen, in case you misunderstand, I'm not suggesting that we just have, I don't know, a goosebump thing going on here. When Jesus rolled into town, it was holy, right? Remember, Jesus was holy. That's what I want for this place. Here, if you can keep a secret, I'll tell you this. It's a secret, but it won't be a secret for long, I guess. Um, uh, John, Eugene Peterson wrote the message, translated the Bible uh, into, it's called the message version. Many of you have read it or read it or, or part of it. And he does something with John 1.14. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, Eugene Peterson took that little verse and wrote it this way. The word became flesh, didn't change that. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And I really like that. Because when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, kind of like the tabernacle in Exodus, when, when it becomes a holy place. Now, sometimes when Jesus was involved in Jesus' life, right, there would be a goosebump type of experience. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and God came, you know, goosebump for sure. When Lazarus came walking out of the grave after four days, you kidding me? I'm sure every person there had goosebump upon goosebump. Awesome. But sometimes Jesus worked, and there probably wasn't many goosebumps. But it was still holy. For example, when, when Jesus fed the 5,000, some, some of those people didn't even know where that bread and fish lunch came from. They were just happy to eat. And when Jesus turned the water into wine, most of the people were told they didn't even know that they had run out of wine. They were just happy. You know, the party can continue. Holy place, holy ground, isn't simply about goosebumps. That's my point. Sometimes it's about needs being met. So what does that mean? That means this is holy place. When boys and girls meet over at the peak from the boys and girls club because they have a safe place and they get lunch or dinner or a place to learn. And this is a holy place on Tuesdays and Fridays when, when we're giving out food. I wish, you could, I wish you could just drive by here on a Tuesday or a Friday and see the lineup of cars, everybody getting free food. It's just awesome. We stopped off, Carla and I did this Friday because we were taking some food. This family had no transportation. They couldn't drive here. So we picked up a couple of boxes and took it to their family. But there's, you know, a lineup of cars and we give away all this food. We've been giving away all this food. We'll go through the end of the year. It's awesome. It's holy. That's a holy moment. Or, or, or just this morning, Carol Dahl, she's on the uh, Flint Township Board of Trustees and she attends our church and she came up to me just this morning and she said, hey, Pastor, Meyer got a grant, and we can give uh, uh, free flu shots if 
if, but we need a space to do it. Could we give out free flu shots at your church? I said, yes, I need a flu shot. And so sometime, be watching, be watching, we'll let you know when. Sometime in November, uh, uh, we'll give out free flu shots. Why, why do we do that? Why, is that? why is that holy? Because when Jesus was on earth, he not only had these mountaintop experiences and mountain transfiguration, but a lot of times holy moments were when he was feeding 5,000 people or when he was raising the dead, when he, was, when he was healing the sick, when he was going to people, when he was caring for even the, what the, the rest of the world considered the, the sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes, when he was their friend. Those were holy moments. And you know what? That's what I want for this place. So that, so that not just when people are driving by, all oh, those people are they're, they're the holy people. No, I wanted to be driving by this place. Say, those people helped me. When I was needing food, they helped me. When I was sick, they, they wrote off my medical debt. When I was needy and I was in trouble, I went there and they helped me. That's a holy place. See, and that's what was going on in Exodus. Why did they have this holy ground? Why is it so important to spend so much time? Because when God is present... When, when, when there's a holy ground, God works in powerful and glorious ways. That was true back then with the tabernacle. That could be true today. This place needs to be holy ground. Holy place. All right, so there's two, th three big themes. I told you big, three big themes in these books. And the first two are great. Yahoo! You know, Exodus, God works miracles. Oh, dry ground by Egypt. Second big story is this, this idea of a holy ground, a holy place, and, and, and God being the center. That's what we need to be. Yahoo! Oh, I don't want to talk about the third one. Um, these people, God rest, they'd been slaves 400 years. And God, God rescued them, redeemed them, led them out of slavery into into this place got the promised land already for them provided for them every single day manna water came out of rocks quail came when they were complaining about too much you know too much manna not enough you know meat the theme running through all of exodus and numbers is the people were constantly grumbling 10 times tells us that they were grown right after the right after they got out right after they got out of Egypt I mean they had been out but for a few days and they're grown, and right in the book of Exodus right after Moses and Miriam his sister they have a song and they're just singing God's praises God, God rescued them from Egypt right after that so the very next thing after the great song Exodus 15 24 so the people grumbled against Moses what are we to drink grumble 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 God just rescued you all right all right so God gets them leads them to a place there's 15 springs there's plenty of water everybody's happy no they're not because just a cup I mean just it's in the chapter 16 but it's really just a couple verses later they said this in the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. We sat around pots with meat, ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us into this never to starve the entire assembly to death. Grumble, 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 grumble. <sighs> Their life is characterized throughout this. These people who had been rescued and who God provided at every single 
turn seem to be grumbling at every single turn. So they get to this place called Kadesh Barnea. One year in, 11 months at, at Mount Sinai, a month or two to get there, a month up there, so maybe, I don't know, 15 months in to their newfound freedom, right? It's time to go take the promised land. Let's go. This is why we're out. God gave us the promised land. And God had told them, this is going to be awesome. You're going to love it. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. Even if you're lactose intolerant, you're going to love it. So Moses sends, you know this story. Moses sends 12 spies. And they come back. And 10 of those spies. They say, man. There's, some, there's, there's, there's a lot of great stuff there. There's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, good food and big, huge grapes. But whoo, they got walled cities. And whoo, they got mean. So we build, we're, slave, we're former slaves. We know how to build bricks. We don't know how to make war. And they've got warriors and they've got chariots and they've got swords. And we're sunk if we go over there. There's no way, there's no way. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, they, they stand up. Numbers 13, they say, no, no, no. We should go and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Hurrah! But you know what happens, right? They, they listen to the grumblers, and, and, they, and they get to the point, and they're so upset, and the grumbling continues. And in, verse, in chapter 14, they say, you know, if only we had died in Egypt... Oh, we wish we could be back in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us up to the land only that we would fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to be back in Egypt? Oh, we want to be slaves. What are they saying? And then they said to each other, we should choose a leader, a new leader. Moses stinks and go back to Egypt where we can be happy because we're getting beaten every day building bricks. What kind of... What kind of people are these? God had rescued them from the Red Sea and there was manna and there was was water coming out of rocks. Grumbling, 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 grumbling ignores God's potential. All they could see was what's right in front of them. That's what happens when you start to grumble. You turn inward and you think, just what are the, the things in front of them? We can never do it. Well, God has already worked miracles. Miracle, 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 miracle. Nope, no more. <laughs> it ignores God's potential. Grumbling not only ignores God's potential, but grumbling jumps to the wrong conclusions. Did you see in that passage that I read? Oh, they're going to take our wives and our children as plunder. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. It's grumbling. This is what grumbling does. It, it makes us do all these what ifs. What if this happens and this happens and then this, some of those things will never happen. It jumps to the wrong conclusions. Grumbling leads to self-pity. Oh, why this have to happen to us? We want to go back to Egypt. We were happy there. They weren't happy there. We were happy there. Grumbling, that is, maybe that's one of the worst characteristics of, of grumbling. It just turns us so inward focused. Grumbling, it thrives in an atmosphere of fear. Misery loves company. So they had the 10 spies and everybody else. Oh, you know, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. And that's what happens. Fear can always draw a crowd. Hope. You know, joy. Sometimes, sometimes that has to stand alone. 
Let's see, Joshua and, and, and Caleb, they saw what was going on, and they give almost this, you know, if you're a Braveheart fan, you guys, you know, William Wallace, half blue face, you know, stand up, and they give this great speech. And they say, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we'll devour them. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Ah, freedom! In one ear, out the other. They didn't listen. He said, no, we'd rather be here. Grumbling, grumbling results in dissatisfaction. Grumbling results in critical attitudes. Grumbling results. <sighs> Eventually, for the children of Israel, grumbling resulted in death. Because you know what happens? God had enough. And the rest of Numbers 15, 14 is God saying, all right, enough, enough. You want to die here in the wilderness? You get your wish. And he proceeds to tell them that none of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, are going to go into the promised land. And so for the next 38 years... These grumblers who had seen God work miracle after miracle after miracle. And God's graciousness, he was still providing miracle after miracle for these people. Still providing the water and the quail and the manna. But for 38 years, they watched friend after friend die. Because they were so inward focused. Listen, the three great themes running through these, these books of Exodus and Numbers. God works miracles. He led them out of the slavery into, into, would have led them through, next week we're going to get to Mount Nebo, into the promised land. God works miracles. A second big theme that is seen through there is we need to create some holy space where God is the center, where God is our focus. And sometimes that holy place in that holy space means that, that there'll be some kind of, you know, worship, warm, awesome, powerful moments like we've had in here all the time. But sometimes that'll look very much like feeding the hungry or taking care of the sick. You might not get a goosebump, but God's involved and it turns into a holy moment. And sometimes in the danger, the danger, the danger is even when God is working, God is moving, God is with us, we turn inward because we only see what's going on and we don't see God's potential. Fight against the grumbling. Things may not always go your way. But that doesn't mean that God has left you. That doesn't mean that God's not with you. That doesn't mean that God's not walking beside you. We can trust Jesus. The whole book of Exodus and Numbers, it's telling us God is a miracle working God. You can trust him. He can lift you out of slavery and into freedom. It tells us that we need to create space for God Almighty in our life. A holy place and holy ground and live for him. Let him be the center. And it warns us, don't be a grumbler. Don't turn inward. Don't think it's all about you. Realize that God is on the throne no matter what's happening in your life. Realize God is on the throne no matter what's going on in the world. Jesus still reigns. And we can still trust him. That's what, that's the point of all of this.